Romans 15, we are given this assurance, that the nature of God's word stems from the very nature of God himself. Our God is the God of all comfort. Therefore, his word gives us comfort that we might endure in hope as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. No wonder then that God calls us to pay careful attention to his word because there is comfort in close reading. It's uh, a pleasure for us to uh, join with you uh, over these uh, next couple of months. Uh, we knew uh, the wits a little bit at college, and uh, it's uh, great to be able to uh, partner with them uh, in this period. Uh, we've uh, tremendously appreciated uh, the welcome that we've had from you thus far. Uh, the amount of lunch invitations we've already received uh, will probably take us through for most of the three months already. And uh, uh, while I won't say it here, uh, exactly why, uh, but uh, the, uh, what that means to us as a family is actually quite significant, uh, to be so welcomed and to be reminded of the welcome of God's saints. Uh, friends, uh, to make it a bit easier, uh, Stuart's asked me to keep preaching through Matthew's gospel at this time, uh, which I've gladly said yes to because... Uh, having to choose for yourself what to preach can be a little bit onerous at times. So uh, it's good that uh, he's uh, told me what to preach and uh, we pick up uh, from chapter 13 here. As we've uh, already been reminded this morning, our God is a God who speaks. He did speak and brought life from nothing. He sustains things by his powerful word. He spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And in these last days, he has spoken by his son, who is the word himself. But the question that we might have is, well, why doesn't everyone believe that word? Why do we believe, but why do others not? And so this morning, I want us to work through this passage and to ask three questions, well, to ask two questions and to take comfort in a conclusion. To ask the question of, first, why don't people believe? Second, why do we believe? may sound like an odd question to ask. And thirdly, to take comfort that God is sovereign over our faith. Why don't people believe? Why do we believe? And to have comfort that God is sovereign over our faith. Well, as we pick up here in Matthew chapter 13, you see right there in verse 1, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Later on in the day, he will return to the house. And presumably, the conversation that happens between verse 10 and verse 23 is what happens later in the day. And uh, what we have in 1 to uh, 9, the first parable and the parables that flow after that, is what Jesus teaches while he's sitting in the boat beside the sea. But Matthew links this chapter with what's gone before. And it's important that we understand that because things are starting to come to a head and we've seen that over the preceding chapters. There is a willful, persistent, inveterate denial that Jesus is the son of David, that Jesus is the Christ, God's king, God's rule established in this world through the one that he has sent, particularly in the Pharisees. These people not just know the law, but they are renowned for living according to the law. And yet they see in Jesus nothing other than just another man. They accuse him of being a lawbreaker. Worse, they accuse him 
of acting in the power of the evil one. Rather than seeing in Jesus the rule and reign of God come, they see in Jesus the work of the evil one. A willful, persistent denial. John the Baptist came, he fasted, and they said, well, he must have a demon. Jesus came, he didn't fast, he ate and drank. And they said, well, he must be a glutton. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. No matter what God did, they were determined to see the opposite. No matter the good that God brought, they were determined to see the wrong in it. You've met those kind of people. Perhaps you've been that kind of person, always seeing the negative and the wrong. Except in this case, it's the one God has sent. And in perhaps some of the most sobering words, Jesus calls this kind of activity blasphemy against the spirit. To attribute the work of God and his spirit to the work of the devil. You can mock Jesus. You can crucify Jesus. You can kill him. And yet all of that could be forgiven. But you turn to him in repentance and faith. But to persist in willfully rejecting him of refusing to see God at work in him, well, that won't be forgiven. But these people had everything, didn't they? As Paul would put it in in the book of Romans, these people had the very words of God. The Pharisees, they had the law. They had the prophets. They had the patriarchs. They had the promises. They had the covenants. And yet they still reject him. Has the word of God failed? We've heard from Isaiah this morning, later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah promises that when God's word goes out, it will fulfill exactly the purposes for which he sends it. As the rain falls and waters the ground and doesn't return to the heavens unless it's fulfilled the purposes for which God has sent it, so it is with his word. It goes forth, but it doesn't come back empty-handed. Is that promise a lie? Because these people, they had the word, they had everything, and yet their hearts were hard against him. Has the word failed? Jesus, at the end of the chapter 12, talks about who his mother and brothers and sisters are. And he says, here are my mother's mother and brothers and sisters, the ones who do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? But in a short time, the Father will speak from the heavens and say, this is my son. Listen to him. In John's gospel, what does Jesus say? He says, what is the work that God calls us to do? To believe in the one that he has sent. The will of the Father is that we listen, that we hear. To belong to God's family is nothing less than to hear the word and receive it. And yet, the very people that had that word, had everything, have rejected it. Perhaps in your own life, you may be tempted to lose heart. Week in, week out, year in, year out. Your loved ones, your neighbours, the people that you work with, reject the word of God. Perhaps more tragically so, they used to hear the word of God and now no longer do. The division that comes from that, the tension, the conflict, 
the sorrow, the seeming unfruitfulness of sharing the gospel with others. Is it worth it? Or even more, perhaps we're wrong. If you're anything like me, perhaps you've had those thoughts from time to time. Jesus speaks a word into this context. A gentle corrective to reform our expectations. But in turn, it's a giant comfort to revital us and give us hope. He sits down beside the sea. The crowds come. The tension has been built and he speaks to them in parables. Now, given that we get the explanation of this parable a little bit later, we might miss the oddness of what Jesus is doing here. You see the context. You've heard the context. Everything is building to a head. People are accusing him of doing the work of the evil one. He's saying, you know, you're blaspheming against the spirit. The tension is building. The crowds have come. They have exited the house, which we know from Mark's gospel. Everyone was swamping the house. They couldn't get in. And he goes to the seaside. There's so many people. He has to sit down in the boat to teach. And, well, there was a farmer. And he went out and sowed some seed. The crowd don't get the explanation at the end. They just get the parable. That's it. No wonder then the disciples say in verse 10, um, what did you do that for? Why did you speak to them in parables? And perhaps you've had those experiences in your life too. You've heard a preacher preach and you thought, what on earth just happened then? Uh, Emma and I weren't dating at the time. This is the first time, however, that we sat next to each other in a uh, Bible talk. It was uh, We were both ministry trainees and uh, we were at uh, a mid-year conference and it was the last day of the mid-year conference. And if you've ever been to these types of conferences before, you will know that the last day is usually the massive G-up kind of sermon to go preach the gospel uh, because the people are perishing. And everyone's waiting for it and the preacher gets up and 40 minutes of rock badges. What? What does the Old Testament say about chewing the cud and cloven foot feet and rock badges? And is the Bible historical or not? Or is its taxonomy right or not? And yeah, if you're confused, so will we. And so in the debrief afterwards, the question was inevitably, what did you do that for? It's memorable. Uh, it's also memorable because I really liked Emma at that point. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, how's this for a pickup line? You know, at one point the preacher was saying, look, for this kind of thing, you just go to your new Bible dictionary and that'll tell you the answers to all these things. Like, if you want to know what a high priest is, go find out about a high priest. And I was able to turn to Emma at that point and say, you know, the new Bible dictionary doesn't have an entry for high priest. Um, how's that for a pickup line? Yeah, so impressive. Um, what on earth is going on? One of my favourite quotes from one of the many Robin Hood movies is where Eleanor of Aquitaine gives uh, an illustration to her wayward son, John. And uh, he says, Mother, spare me your farmhood memories. You don't have any, and I don't understand them anyway. And perhaps the disciples might be forgiven for wondering exactly the same thing. The carpenter's son talking about agriculture. What on earth is going on? The crowds have gathered to hear this man. The crowds have gathered and the conflict is swelling and the tension is rising. What is he going to say? Let me talk about a farmer for a little bit. What is Jesus doing? A parable is nothing more than a rich analogy. 
people can get a bit confused about what parables are. Is it an allegory where each person in the story represents something and we need to parse it and find out what it's all about? Sometimes, but not all the time. Is it a long story? Sometimes, not all the time. In fact, uh, in Luke's Gospel, uh, Jesus will quote a parable that's only three words long. Physician, heal thyself, is called a parable. In the Greek translation of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs are called parables. It's an analogy where something is like something else. A story or a saying is told in order to elicit thought, to provoke a reaction. Sometimes people say that the point of a parable is to make uh, a truth clear. Well, maybe, but not always. And in fact, we'll hear something quite different in this passage. It's a wisdom saying, it's a proverb, it's an analogy. And if you have your Bible with you in front of you, I imagine those at home uh, may have uh, their Bibles. Uh, We're not allowed to hand them out here at the moment. Um, But if uh, later on uh, we all flick down through chapter 13, you'll see a word keep appearing. Um, Let me uh, pick it up from... I'm trying to find... Here we go. Uh, Verse 31, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like... Or verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like... Or verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. It's a metaphor, it's a simile, it's an analogy to provoke thought about something else. But why does Jesus do it? It has a polarising effect. And that polarising effect is not based on cleverness, It's not based on age, it's not based on race, it's not based on gender, it's not based on anything other than disposition. You see, the parables are things, as C.S. Lewis would say, in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. So simple to understand and yet there are depths of truth to it that can be explored. And some people will get it. Those who seek and search diligently with the greatest of care, as the Old Testament would put it, will see riches unfold. Whereas others will just dismiss it as mere folly and fancy. A friend put it like this, it's kind of like the doors opening at uh, a supermarket, the automatic doors. As you walk towards the doors, they'll technically, um, some of our boys are a bit short for it, um, the doors will open. But if you turn away from it, the doors will just shut up behind you. Or it's a bit like colourblind tests. You remember those circles that used to have lots of coloured dots in it and you had to have a test to see whether you were colourblind or not? There are those who would see the different colour so easily and see the number within. But for others, it will always be blank and opaque, just one colour. There's a danger of pushing parables too far. They are analogies. And so sometimes you're... uh, You and I will have the temptation to try and piece together every single element of the story and find what represents what and we'll miss the wood for the trees as a result because that's not the point. But here we come to a parable of the sower. Notice it's not the parable of the soils, that there are different soils in there. Jesus himself calls it a parable of the sower, verse 18. It's a parable not of the seed, but a parable of the sower. And it's a parable that explains why Jesus speaks in parables at all. It's a parable that explains why some people don't believe 
And it's a parable that explains why you and I do believe and the blessing therein. Because the word has not failed. The sower hasn't failed. But the reality is in this life, people will respond differently to the word of God. Because hearing the word and believing it is not a matter of heritage. The Jews had everything. It's not a matter of righteousness. Outwardly, the Pharisees had everything. It's not a matter of gender or age or race. It's not a matter of how clever we are. But it is a matter of God's sovereign determination. The word has not failed. And when people hear the word, there will be different responses. There will be those who will always reject it, never grasp it, never even entertain it. And you've met them. There have been people in my life who have sat week in, week out in church. And it's like hitting a brick wall week after week after week. There are those who, and we've met them, who hear the word and believe it with such joy and enthusiasm and then three months later, you never hear or see from them again. And of course, we meet those tragically who let this life choke them. Their endurance withers and we no longer see them believe. Such vibrant lives for so many years in faith and now nothing. See, the parable of the sower is not a prescription. It's not a test for us to ask, well, which soil are you today? And which are you going to be? Which do you want to be? No, it's a description. And it's a description to remind us that there will be different responses to the word in this life. And in the particular context Jesus is teaching, the Pharisees and their rejection. Why don't they believe? And why do some believe? It's to be expected. The word hasn't failed, but it actually fulfills a different kind of purpose. That is the purpose of hardening hearts. Confirming people in unbelief. As the Apostle Paul would put it, to one, the word is the fragrance of life. To another, it's the stench of death. Isaiah sees God and bewails his existence in front of him. He's atoned for his sin. He sticks up his hand and says, send me to preach the word, God. And what word is he supposed to preach? A word that will just confirm people in unbelief. And so Jesus speaks in parables to polarise. He speaks in parables so that some, yes, will investigate and some will be called and some will be saved. The fragrance of life. But for others, it will merely harden in unbelief. We need to get this right. Because if we don't get it right, we will be tempted to change the message when people don't believe. We'll be tempted to think that somehow our strategies, our mechanisms, our way of doing things is the thing that's wrong and so we need to change the content in order to reach the lost. Unless we get this right, we will see ourselves as failing in preaching the gospel when people don't believe. Unless we get this right, we will lose heart of sharing the gospel with others because they don't believe. Unless we get this right, 
we may be tempted to think, well, it's just my arguments weren't clever enough. No, the kingdom is spiritually discerned. Back in uh, the 90s, uh, there was a particular movement with apologetics, the defense of the gospel, that seemed to suggest, or explicitly suggested, that if uh, we just overcome people's intellectual difficulties, then they will love to come into the kingdom. Today, it's a little bit different. If we just overcome their difficulties with the culture of Christianity, then they will love to come into the kingdom. The people that are peddling that kind of message are not the people on the fringes, not the people out there, but well-known, respected authors within our own contexts. No, no one comes to the kingdom unless God determines. We've already seen it in Matthew's Gospel, haven't we? Matthew eleven twenty-seven. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. I think I've probably got that around the wrong way. But, and, and to those to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. It is God's determination whether we know him or not. And there is a fourth soil, praise God. And that kind of soil doesn't just produce a crop, but a superabundance. One seed is sown and 160, 30 times appears from what was sown. How much abundance comes from those who, in God's determination, hear the word and receive it, who listen, who believe the Son. Notice the language that is used by Jesus when he explains the parable to them. Verse 11, he says, To you it has been given to know. And what are they knowing? They're knowing the secret of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Or again, in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The Old Testament's prophets longed to see it. They looked forward to it. They searched greatly and intently and with the greatest of care, Peter will say. But they couldn't see it. They could only get glimpses of it. And they promised it to come according to God's spirit. But now Jesus has come. And they are blessed. They are blessed. Not clever. Not deserving. But blessed. Because God's spirit works to illuminate, to remove the veil, to take away the blindness. And God brings people to faith. Now, I'm aware uh, with Julianne in uh, the church here, uh, the Women's Conference, what's it called? One Love, is that right? Yes, uh, is uh, uh, well and truly encouraged here. Uh, there are other women's conferences as well. And uh, one earlier this year was uh, the Equip Conference. And uh, I'm not... Uh, a woman, uh, you'll be pleased to know. And uh, the, um, uh, but my wife is on the Equip uh, Conference uh, Committee, and as a result, I see everything. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the, there was a particular uh, task this year, uh, that an encouragement that the conference got the women to do, and perhaps some of you participated in it, uh, to put a photo of yourself, a selfie, with uh, the date in which you became a believer, in which God called you. And it was delightful to see woman after woman put up you know, 2008, 1973, or whenever it was. One thing I noticed is not too many people were doing it from birth. Um, uh, but eventually, uh, my student minister did. Uh, she said, from birth. And sure enough, it was just an accident of discovery. Um, later on, lots of people were starting to put that kind of thing up. But when I was chatting with her about it, she said, oh, yeah, actually, what I really wanted to put was since from before the creation of the world. Um, but I thought that would be too sassy, uh, so I didn't do it. Um, but there's a truth to it, isn't there? When did she become God's elect? Yes, yeah, sure, she was called at a particular point in time, like we all were, but 
We were chosen, elected, even from before the creation of the world. We are blessed, not by merit, but by grace. Last week, I was asked to share my testimony uh, when Stu interviewed me. I could have easily just have said, we all have our stories, don't we? And they're wonderful and delightful to hear. But why am I a Christian? Because God. We are blessed. A good gift given for good purposes. Born not of human decision or a father's will, but born of God. Membership into his family, mother, brother, sister, by his choice. And we can take comfort in that and a surety in it. Because if there's nothing else in it, and there's so much in it, we are reminded that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? How good is that news? It's a comfort in our context too. Because as we look at this world, perhaps we can start to think that sharing the gospel isn't worthwhile. The Jews had everything and they still rejected Jesus. Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Amos, he's just a farmer. He actually was a farmer as opposed to a carpenter's son. He he was a farmer and he went to the northern kingdom from Judah up into Israel to preach a word that ultimately got him persecuted. And if we are to believe the intertestamental stories that, like most of the prophets, got him killed. But his word said this. They had everything, Israel. But even then they rejected God. And so God disciplined them. He gave them empty stomachs in every city. And yet they did not return to God. He gave them drought. And they didn't return to him. He gave them mildew in the gardens, destroying with blight. And they didn't return to him. He sent them plague. And still they didn't return to him. All day long he held out his hands to a stubborn and obstinate people. Kind of sounds a little bit like Sydney, doesn't it? Remember the bushfires? Who would have thought in January that the bushfires would become an afterthought? He gave us bushfires and still we didn't turn to him. He's given us plague and still we haven't returned to him. He gave us rain in Sydney but not in the drought areas and still we haven't returned to him. Why is it that this people rejects their God? It's to be expected, brothers and sisters. It's not for us to lose heart. It's not for us to despair. It's not for us to expect differently. But it's for us to understand that in this world, people will reject God. But there is a comfort here as well. Because while in the depths of sin and darkness people keep rejecting God, yet he has the power to save. And when he calls, who can resist that calling? Our salvation doesn't depend on our cleverness. Our salvation doesn't depend on our strength. It depends purely on his grace. And what a comfort that is. Because God is not slow to act. God is not weak to act. God is not powerless God is not to be surprised. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't die. He is sure and steady and steadfast. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? 
because his steadfast love endures forever. What a far better anchor for our soul than any other anchor. But it also means that as we share the word with others, we can take comfort in the knowledge that when we preach the word, yes, so many will reject, but God will call his elect from every nation. Perhaps in this time of COVID, we may be tempted to think, well, there go all of our strategies, all of our plans to share the word with our community. Perhaps we may be tempted to think, now that Stu has gone on leave for a few months, that, well, where, where is our plan to share the gospel with others? Who's going to lead us in that? Friends, what we need, we already have. Prayer to the sovereign God to open doors. The word in our hearts and on our mouths to share with our community. And like Isaiah, unless we stick up our hand to go, who will hear? For many, we will be the stench of death. But for some, blessedly for some, they will say, how blessed are those who bring the good news. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching hosted here at Comforting Close Reading. If you're looking for other resources, you can head over to our main site, scriptorium.net.au. If you have any questions, our email address is right at scriptorium.net.au.